the numbers all go to 11. I'm talking about bands that rock. Led Zeppelin. What about Sabbath? ACDC. Motorhead. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? We're not worthy! We're not worthy! Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. I get up above the ground and raise my head days like this. Think I should be dead. One for Satan, two for me. Let's cheat the devil, it's fun, don't you? Welcome to the Nothing Shocking Podcast. I'm your co-host, Bob Zarrell. And again, I'm alone in Deadbug Studios, but Eric was here for the interview with Andy Timmons of Danger Danger and the Andy Timmons Band. He's also been part of the G3 and G4 experience. Uh, but before we get there, I want to tell you to check us out at zpnetwork.com, zoicsonline.com. We're on Facebook at the Nothing Shocking Podcast community fan page and the Quad Cities Rock and Roll Junkies interest group. Our Twitter handle is NoShockPod. Follow us there to get all the latest information on the podcast. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Alexa, wherever you're, wherever you can listen to podcasts, we're there. Uh, subscribe to the show, rate and review the show. We'll read your reviews on the air. And then our sponsors, Ragged Records and Legends Picks. Uh, I want to thank the band Hong Kong Sleepover for letting us use their music throughout the podcast and then we are on rock rage radio on sundays at noon central time maybe two i can't remember but sundays on rock rage radio uh it's been a while since we recorded so i forgot uh our like i said andy timmons of danger danger and the andy timmons band is here or is the guest on this episode but before i get there i did get to see a couple shows this week uh first with godsmack hailstorm and monster truck monster truck has been a guest on the podcast before i took my whole family went to that show and it was phenomenal godsmack has really transformed themselves into a more mainstream band and hopefully can truly stay at that arena level and maybe even get bigger uh my kids love the new record uh it, it's really really amazing i tried to show them some godsmack songs and all they wanted to hear was the new stuff uh so that's encouraging uh hailstorm is great as always and monster truck really it, it was a great opening act i can't wait to hear more from them it was a fantastic concert. If you have a chance to see that tour before it ends, please do so. I also made it out to Louder Than Life. I did this one as a fan, not as a member of the press. 128,000 people, the biggest uh, festival, I think, ever in America that Danny Wimmer Presents put on. Uh, at least that's what I read recently. Guns N' Roses, Slipknot, Disturb, Godsmack, Hailstorm, Rob Zombie, Marilyn Manson, Chevelle, Stained, Reunited. Uh, just a f- ice cube. It was a. It was hot. It was a hundred degrees all three days, or damn near close. And it was just a ton of fun. It was exhausting. I just got to see this band, The Pink Slips. They opened up the Saturday show. It's Duff McKagan's daughter. I didn't know that at the time. And uh, they they just they blew me away. I mean, they played for maybe fifty people. It was you know it kind of sucks. It was at noon on the hottest day of the week or no maybe sunday was hotter but it was still 97 98 degrees and they played right at noon uh 
and I I don't know who was on the main stage at the time, but I just I thought they looked cool, so I went down and checked them out, and they were amazing. I can't wait to hear more from this band, uh, and I hopefully we can get them on the podcast sometime because I really truly enjoyed that that performance, and uh, I can't recommend them enough. The Pink Slips, check them out on wherever you listen to music. Uh, but overall, it was just a, it was a ton of fun. I was always skeptical of these festivals just because I, I'd like to see the full shows. You know, I'd just seen God's Megan Hailstorm and then they were here again playing a stripped down set, but it was still pretty awesome. Uh, it, it, it's just fun. There's a, a different energy when there's that many people there that I just, you can see it in the performers, you can see it in the crowd. I highly recommend checking out these Danny Wimmer, Danny Wimmer Presents festivals, Rock on the Range, Louder Than Life, Chicago Open Air, uh, Carolina Rebellion, whatever they are, wherever they are, such a, just a great time. Uh, pick at least one a year and go. It's worth the trip. It's worth it. Find the lineup you like best and just go. I cannot recommend it more. All right, that's enough of me acting. Let's get to Andy Timmons, Danger Danger, and the Andy Timmons Band. See you next week. Hey, Andy, are you there? Eric, can you hear me okay? I can hear you perfectly. Hey, I want to introduce you to my co-host, Bob Zerl. Hello. Hey, Bob. How you guys doing? Pretty good. Well, hey, first of all, I want to thank you so much for the correspondence and willing to participate. Oh, no problem, man. Yeah, we're excited to have you. I'm very very happy to do it, and sometimes it takes a while for me to get together, but (laughs) glad we got it scheduled. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, um... Where where are you guys located, out of curiosity? Uh, we're kind of in the western Illinois, the Quad City area, Davenport, Iowa, Rock Island, Illinois, that... Kind of like an hour away from oh, everything. Wow, cool. Yeah, we're right, right, right on the Mississippi awesome. River. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right All right. Well. Sweet. Yeah. Um. I guess maybe the question for you is where are you residing now? <laughs> I am. I'm in McKinney, Texas. So I'm. Uh. It's like a northern uh, suburb of Dallas. I'm about thirty minutes north of Dallas. Oh. Okay. Very good. And I've been. I've been. I've been here for about, I guess twenty two years now. Uh, right when right when my wife and I got married, uh, a good friend of mine lived in this area and was a home builder. So we ended up uh, migrating from from Dallas up here, kind of when it was seemed like a, a long way away from Dallas. But now it's all one big sprawling <laughs> metroplex. You know, it's over quintupled in size as we've been up here. So it's uh, it's it's exploding, as they say. I guess that kind of would bring up a question that I didn't have off the top of my head, but I guess maybe this is a fair question to ask. We've had artists sure. from the Dallas-Fort Worth area on before, and okay. they and they had spoke about the rock scene maybe maybe a few years ago in the Dallas-Fort Worth area as a thriving scene uh, back in its day. Um, I guess, what is the scene like in Dallas-Fort Worth now? That's a, that's a good question. Um, it's I'm, I'm not really a part of it, so it's, it's got... <laughs> I think maybe back in the day I would have been had a better answer for you, but I I don't play locally that much. There's a uh, there's a great venue here in McKinney called the Guitar Sanctuary, and um, it's actually the same guy that was my buddy that was a, a home builder up here. That's his guitar shop, and it's got mm. a venue attached to it. So I tend to play there. But there's always been there's always been a, a huge amount of you know great players in this area, uh, partially 
just, I guess, Texas being what it is, it's definitely a, a, a fruitful uh, musical scene. But you know, with the North Texas University up in Denton, that's bringing in a lot of uh, you know really great players from around the world, really. That tend to you know, a lot of them end up staying here. So, um, so not just rock. There's a, there's a there's a great jazz scene. There's all mm. kinds of uh, variety um, of, of, of of music and a lot of great like you know a lot of great players. But as far I mean, like, I think it's it's true of just about any area. Obviously, the the club scene you know might have been really really hot in the eighties, but then through the through the nineties might have started to dwindle. Right. Partially, maybe just musical taste change. Partially, economy. Um, you know, and now just with, with entertainment being what it is with, uh, be it Netflix or iPhones, I mean, a lot of people stay home these days. It's a little harder to get people out, but it seems like, I mean, it seems like there's, there's still plenty of bands playing around and venues. So I'm trying to come up with an answer here, but I, I, I'm failing horribly. (laughs) I I just, I just, I just, because I don't, I don't gig as much locally, it's kind of hard for me to know. But, but, but again, back in the day when it was, it was all about, you know, having a gig every week in your hometown, you know, you were a little bit more tapped in for where there were, you know, consistent gigs to play, et cetera. Absolutely. You know, we, we've also heard um, from artists that, you know, discuss the, um, the Austin element to Texas as far as how the, I guess maybe more of a hipster moment, uh, or movement is what we should call it. Um, has that spread out? Is that, is that pretty much, centralized in Austin or has it kind of branched out at all? I, I, I guess I just, I don't think of things so much as scenes or regions though that I, for sure, Austin maybe started really kind of blowing up in the, in the eighties and nineties. And obviously a lot of people gravitated towards that area. And I'm assuming it's still going on, Mm -hmm. but I, I gotta, I gotta say for me, it just seems like, a band can just be anywhere if they're if they're really really kind of happening. I mean, yeah, it kind of makes sense to migrate where there's more going on, no doubt about it. But as far as you know, the business being what it is these days, and how 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 much of it is uh, kind of driven on the internet, you know, mm-hmm. um, it used to be if people would ask me, you know, when I was doing clinics back in the '80s or '90s, you know, what do I have to do to make it? It's like, well, okay, you got to obviously get your act together and to maybe get to a bigger city, but now if you know, if you got something to offer, people can find you, you know, via the internet almost as easily. But then, yeah, but obviously, you got to get out and, and play and, and tour if you can. Um, but I was I was never one, you know. Pe- people would have thought, you know, even in the Danger Danger days, they thought we were, you know, either we must have been LA based, <laughs> you know, or because t- people tended to move there, um, and then. Uh, but or Nashville as far as session work and stuff like that. But I don't know. I've, I've led a, a slightly different uh, perspective on on that type of thing throughout my career. Maybe for better or worse, I don't know. I mean, it might have led to more opportunities had I been in Austin or in L.A. or Nashville. But I've been pretty happy with the amount of work I've been able to, to keep uh, keep busy with. You know, fantastic. How ha- <clears throat> how has the you know, with the internet and technology and all, you know, that's obviously changed throughout your career. Has that, you know, are you one of those guys yeah. that likes the old school way where it sounds better? Or do you kind of like the new 
school way of doing things where you can not be in the same room you can send files you know via dropbox or whatever else you do or and the pro tools are great like where are you at in terms of your opinion of technology versus kind of the old school way of doing things yeah there's there's a lot of um there's a lot of stuff that i do as far as my own band that's as old school as possible you know when i work with mike dane on the andy timmons band records you know we're not going to tape anymore, but we even even as recent as resolution, that was all, you know, the rhythm section stuff was all done to tape, and then we we ended up in a digital medium, but we did it in a way where we didn't we used the we used the digital medium as a tape deck essentially. We didn't, you know, we didn't use really any EQ or, you know, when we recorded it was microphone into preamp, and no EQ. We would just move the mic and change the amp tone if we wanted to change the EQ. I mean that was. We wanted to, we try to keep it as pure as we can in the modern in the modern world of, of, of technology. I mean, with obviously with Pro Tools, you can play God with every every you know part particle of of your sound from moving it in time, moving it in pitch, moving it in in whatever way, shape, or form it, it to where it's not really honest anymore. And then we try to avoid that as much as possible. But that being said, I absolutely embrace the modern way of doing things. And I get asked to play on recording projects where the only way to do it is for me to do it here at my home and, and send it via Dropbox. And uh, I'm doing a project right now with the Bissonette brothers, Matt and Greg Bissonette. Uh, Matt, Matt's writing a bunch of great tunes. They're calling the band the Redcoats. And uh, so it's me and Greg and, and Matt and a keyboard player. And we're, that's the only way we could do it. He, he plays in a room with those guys wherever they are, but he's been touring with Elton John. And so he'll, I'll get these files and, Learn learn the tunes and play, but we're gonna do but we're gonna do some tracks together in a studio. I think in November, so I'm looking forward to that. Because you can't replace. There's nothing like being in a room and looking everybody in the eye and feeling things together. That that's. I mean, listen to listen to all our favorite records from the '60s and, and a good part of the '70s, and so much of that is guys in a room playing live, and you can't can't really duplicate that. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I've been obsessing over the Who the last couple of weeks and listening to Live at Leeds incessantly, and it's just some of the greatest rock. It's just so raw and visceral, you know. And you're not going to quite get that, you know, sending your Pro Tools file or you know Logic file in a in a Dropbox to your buddy in New Zealand. <laughs> it might it might be great. You could you could you could create some great music this way, and I'm not disparaging that technique at all, but. But when you can get it together and and have guys in a room that that palpable energy, and when if you could properly capture that, you know, if you got somebody that really knows how to record, that's where that's where you can have some magic happen. So, um, it, as a broad answer to your question, it's it's I, I try to keep a foot in 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 old school, but you have to embrace the modern. You know, uh, it's just kind of a fact of life of of of, of keeping busy, really. You know what's kind of the key you know using the modern what is the key to kind of keeping that live sound is it just to not play god with pro tools or is, is it to be able to recreate everything you do live or like like what because some bands can pull it off i mean it's never yeah. Led zeppelin but you can kind no, of pull I, it off yeah you could well i and, and i and i i brought up resolution earlier so that was a record that started off you know live in the studio with my band and I ended up really not liking any guitar tracks that I played. I was really kind of burned out on instrumental guitar music at that point, which is kind of strange to say, since that's what that record 
was to be, but I had played, you know, some of the tracks I'd play live with the band. Well, all the tracks I played live with the band, sometimes playing rhythm guitar, sometimes playing solo, thinking, well, I might keep some of this or I might replace this. Well, I ended up scrapping everything that I'd done. We kept the, we kept the bass and drums. But when I made the commitment to um, basically foregoing any overdubs, I decided to, it, what, what I got excited about at the, was the point where something Steve Vai had said to me when he'd released my, my earlier record called uh, That Was In This Is Now. There was a couple of songs that I, I didn't have any overdubs. It was just one guitar, bass, and drums. And he made a comment that he really liked the sections that were just the one guitar because you could really hear the fingers on the frets. And when I, when I remembered that comment, I thought, what if I could do a whole record without any overdubs? Then I got excited because I thought, this is really going to be difficult. It's going to kick my butt, right? Um, so that's when I you know, scrapped all the tracks. I kind of had to recreate how I was going to perform the guitars. So obviously, the, the, the band was done. The bass and drums were, were great. I liked what they did. And I liked a lot of my impro- improvisational guitar tracks, some of the solos that I played, but maybe not all of it. So I would learn what I improvised. And then compose around it, and that that took a little bit of. Um, I had to give myself permission to do that because a lot of my um, credo before that would have been, "Oh man, it's got to be you know no preconceptions. It's got to be improvised. It's got to be fresh." But I gave myself the latitude to, you know, kind of shun that jazzer mentality, so to speak, and really compose to like so. Where by the time I recorded the guitar tracks, I knew what every note. I knew what I, what I wanted it to sound like, the feel of it, the placement, the tone. And so then I had to go about figuring out, A, how to play it the way I wanted it, and then how to make it feel fresh with the band. And I think I took the time and I really I really pulled it off to where it, it does sound, it sounds very live to me, even though it's very, very composed. It's pretty composed, essentially, at that point. But I played so much, you know, with, the band over the years, you know, they were already reacting to how I was playing in the studio. So I had to re- recreate the energy, but I did do it. So, you know, it is, it is, it is certainly possible, but I, boy, when you can get it actually on the, on the, on the first take with the band, that's, yeah. that's definitely the the preferred means. So. I guess maybe this next kind of question kind of flows with that. Um, your tone, mm-hmm. Andy Timmons tone, your sound, um, mm-hmm. it, you're, you're very identifiable, along with some of your contemporaries, Paul Gilbert, Steve Vai, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was showing a video um, of you to a co-worker of mine, and he's a, a lead guitarist slash rhythm guitarist in a, a gospel band. And he was fascinated with okay. your with, with your tone. Um, and he's always wow, searching okay. for tone all the time. I guess, you know what? There's, I don't know if there's a, if it's your secret or whatever. Your tone. How, how have you reached you know, to your sound that we're – you know, it's identifiable. This is Andy Timmons. This is very definitely identifiable. Can you tell us more? (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, we could spend a lot of time talking about tone and it's, and, uh, I appreciate you saying that it's, it's, it's sometimes hard for me to be objective about what that sound is, but it, what it really boils down to is, you know, I'll talk about this in different teaching courses I've done over time, et cetera. And it's, it starts with the player's ear. It starts with, you know, in the, in their head, what are the, what is the sound that's the ultimate sound for the the piece of music that they're playing? You know, everybody kind of has their, I call them the benchmark guys. And for me, you know, there's certain tones that Hendrix had or Stevie Ray had or Eric Johnson or, you know, 
or even earlier, like, you know, Ace Frehley and Alex Lyson and Ted Nugent, or later Steve Lukather and Mike Stern and Larry Carlton, the, the, the kind of the, the combined um, ultimate tones for each different kind of musical situation, I, I'm convinced that the player kind of has stocked away in their, their musical memory library, right? And then as they're playing, I think they're attempting to reach at least the way that I conceive it, I'm trying to reach the level of my heroes, basically. I, you know, I hear in my head, you know, they've laid the, like the kind of the, the template. Then hopefully, obviously, with my own my own touch and style, and sometimes even your your uh, the things that you can achieve, you know, sometimes it's your limitations that, that kind of create your sound, right? It's things you can't do. You might be trying to do one thing, or play a, a certain style or certain lick, but you can't necessarily do it like the original guy, but it ends up sounding like you eventually. It's, so it's this combination of uh, the idea of what the ultimate sound might be, and then your your physiology, everybody's hands and fingers are going to sound different. There's something to that. How you, you know, how you play, how you drive the string with your pick, there's... There's all these things, but it's really driven, I think, initially, first and foremost, by the, the player's ear, how they, what their concept and what their you know, idea of a great sound is. And then and then it's just, it really is the hours. It really is the years attempting to produce those sounds. You know, the gear, I mean, absolutely, the guitar, the right pedal, the right amp, whatever, all the stuff that we chase, all this, you know, this gear that we buy, I'm, I'm staring at a room full of junk you wouldn't believe i've got stacks of pedals and amps and guitars are stacked around and it's all chasing the same thing we want to sound great we want we want to play something hopefully of 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 emotional and intentional value you know to to appeal to the to the listener and whatever whatever you know emotion you're trying to get across and you want it to sound good uh, but it's an, it's just it's just clearly a never ending thing. If somebody compliments my tone, I'm always very grateful. But I'm also going, oh man, well it's not a, anywhere close to what I'm trying to do. <laughs> but I love that. I mean, I love that thing that we're gonna we're gonna chase it till we no longer can. You know, there's there's the tone, there's the tone of it, there's the composition, there's the the right note at the right time, there's there's you know the the song. It's there's so much. Uh, to be put together to, to produce something, hopefully that, that means something to the, to the listener, you know? So as far, so I wish, yeah, I wish I had a great answer as far as here's the, here's the secret. If you buy my signature pedal and this guitar, you know? but it really is, it, it really is all these things I'm talking about. There's such a, such a, a combination, a big stew of all these things that really add up to whatever that is, you know, and I, there's some players and I think it's taken me, you know, maybe longer to develop a voice. But if you think about guys like Eddie Van Halen or or uh, or Ingve, who just would have had their sound so quickly and so young, you know what I mean? It was, you know, and they and they may still sound exactly like that. I think I've kind of gone down a path where I've I've gone after so many different things that there's a broader swath of whatever my tone might be. You know what I mean? But. uh as, as a lot of people say, it's uh, it's it is in the hands, and but it's in the ears. It's in what the player's trying to produce. Yeah, interesting. I was listening to a um, interview a few weeks ago, um, a podcast with Steve Jones, formerly of the Sex Pistols, Jonesy's Jukebox, yeah. and and Billy Gibbons. They were discussing you know, guitar oh, work. Oh. 
And um, so they're just doing this tech talk. And um, Steve asked Billy at the time, he says, you know, what gauge of strings do you use? And and Bi- Bi- <laughs> Billy turns and says, well, I think he turns and said, like, I only heard him in his chair <laughs> as it creaks. Yeah. But um, yeah. he said, uh, yeah. I use sevens. And Steve Jones about fell off his chair. You could hear it rocking and everything else. And um, he explained that uh, years ago, B.B. Uh, King was in his dressing room with him, and he was noodling around on um, Billy's guitar. And he puts the guitar down, yeah. and he says to Billy, he goes, why do you work so hard? And he, Billy, what are you talking about? Wow. He said, well, I, he goes, your guitar strings, are, they're, 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 they're too heavy. I um, mean, Billy was yeah. using um, uh, tens at the time, and he had... Yeah. listened to BB and said, Hey, you know, you should go to sevens and it's such a smoother, uh, a sound for them. Uh, I guess maybe what's your take on that? It, it, what, what gauge of strings well, do you use? I don't necessarily agree with, with Billy, but I, I, I would be shocked to find if any of those Seminoles easy top recordings were done with sevens. <laughs> I'd be very surprised, but I do, I, I, I do know that, yeah, he does use that light of string now. I think Billy Sheehan said he did a session with him years back, and he was shocked to find that how light the strings were. I mean, every player's got to find what's right for them. I mean, for me, I've always, you know, you're not going to, Stevie Ray's not going to get his sound with sevens. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he had 13 to whatever, you know, and there's, the proof is in is in the pudding there, you know. There's, there's a huge amount of tone that comes with a bigger string. I remember, you know, I played nines most of my, you know, youth growing up, and even through when I started with Danger Danger using nines, but there was, there was kind of a movement around them, maybe partially driven by Stevie and the awareness that, you know, the heavier string, you're going to get a fatter tone. You're going to get a better sound. So we were in the middle of, um, gosh, the record that became Cockroach. It wasn't released until many years after it was done because uh, the band was yeah, caught up in a lawsuit, et cetera, back in the, in the early 90s. But the, um, I remember the transition going from nines to tens. I mean, it literally had, you know, blisters ripping off my fingers, you know, it was one of those things where I was, cause I was playing a lot. We were in the middle of making a record. Um, but I was happier with the tone. I really was. And I've, I've played tunes ever since. Um, some guitars will have heavier strings, like for a jazz, a jazz or a surf a guitar that will be set up with heavier strings, like an SG or a longer scale, uh, like 11s on it. But yeah, I, if man, God bless Billy. If he can get a sound with sevens and he can sound like that, I think it's freaking awesome. But I would have a hard time, you know. It would, I don't know. I, I that would, I, I could just, I'm imagining myself playing a, a string that light. Even, even eights, it seems a stretch. But I think maybe Ingvay plays eights, if I'm correct. I'm not sure. And they both get, they both get great sound. So again, I'm by, by no means. Uh, uh, vilifying the light string, but I just I just know what works for me and what I, what I enjoy as far as sonically, you know. Absolutely, um, I've noticed uh, on your uh, website, um, True Fire has released uh, two new instructions videos uh, mm. featuring yourself. Obviously, uh, can you tell us more yeah. about the instructional videos? And is is this like an ongoing uh, library of material that you're doing as far as um, offering well, these to fan and guitar player? Yeah. There's, um, I mean, the true, there's actually, there, I think I have three videos out with True Fire. The original one was just called Elect- Electric Expression, which is like something like five and a half hours of, of me just kind of explaining global concepts of how I, how I play, et cetera. 
then we did one that was kind of a blues thing. And then I did one called Melodic Muse that uh, I thought was really kind of interesting and, and a fresh take on, you know, cause so many people, aside from the tone, they, they are drawn to the melodic side of my playing. And I was asked to maybe try to teach a course on that. I found it initially very daunting. You know, how do I explain where melodies come from? But I really found some pretty unique ways of, of describing and, you know, kind of teaching about the way I conceive and think about melody. Um, so that, that course, you know, that, that those have been out now, maybe about a year, but I do have a brand new one coming out. I think literally in about a month or so, and it's called in the jam where I basically created 10 backing tracks and I, I play on the tracks, rhythm and lead. But, the the student watching can also like mute my lead track or mute the rhythm track and, and play either part that they want. They can jam along basically. So that's coming out. But what, what, what kind of uh, got me started doing some of those videos was I, I mentioned my friend that opened up the guitar store here in McKinney called the guitar sanctuary. He just opened the shop and there's some teaching studios there. He said that one of his friends had a son that wanted a private lesson with me. Would I, would I do it? And I hadn't really taught in a while. And I, I taught earlier in my career, and I didn't really enjoy it. I didn't think, didn't think I was very good at it. I, I felt like it was, it was it was kind of a lot of work, or maybe I didn't have the right students, but it just wasn't fun for me. But this particular lesson that I did, I found that maybe with more experience and more maturity, uh, I kind of enjoyed it. So I did a few more. It was right about that time that, that True Fire asked me to do that mm-hmm. instructional series, and I enjoyed it so much that I decided, to, now I've got my own website, basically. <laughs> it's called uh, Guitar Experience, no E in front of the X, but guitarexperience.net. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's a, subscri- a subscription site, and basically I'm going through my entire catalog, so every month there's a song of the month. I, uh, I, play, the, I play the song. Um, and then I basically teach every component. It's like usually about an hour and a half of me teaching. And it's all transcribed in a variety of different tablatures and notations and guitar pro format for those that know what that is. Um, so I, I'm really passionate about it now. And, and the thing about teaching is that I'm, I'm becoming a much better player. Um, a, because I have to really keep on my toes and be able to play all these old tunes of mine, which <laughs> some of them are pretty challenging. But uh, it's also cool to really kind of analyze some of these things that I might have done naturally or the uh, techniques that evolved throughout my career that I never really thought about. But now I have to kind of like kind of look at what I'm doing and go, oh, okay, well, this is what this is. Here's how I'm doing it. But it might lead me to develop it further where I just might have used it for that particular musical phrase or lick or whatever but I can kind of look at it in a more analytical way. So it's kind of, it's helping me a lot, you know, plus it's a, it's another stream of income, you know, for me to be able to do it. If I'm not on the road with my band or, or doing whatever, I can be a productive in my own studio here. So plus it's, it's also great to document, I think my body of work while I can still do it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's another way of thinking about it. So I'm really, really happy to be, to be uh, teaching like this. I, <clears throat> with, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I have a cold, so I'm having a hard time talking. But <laughs> oh, you're okay. You're fine. Uh, you know, when <clears throat> you're growing up, you know, it would have. I mean, how cool it have been to see Jimmy Page teach you how to play his all his music and stuff. And you know, back then there was <laughs> we didn't have we didn't have any of that. We had a record player and a needle in our ears, you know, right? And you could which slow is it down. ultimately that really is the best way to learn. There's there's no replacing uh, that with the ear, you know. So it's it's 
I don't want to say hypocritical of me, but it's it's just, I do because I do teach this. I also I'm I can show you every bit of this, and I I want to do that. But man, try on your own first because that was one of the blessings that I didn't have all that um, available to me. I had a Mel Bay chord chart. And, and, and occasionally, you know, midnight special, you see Peter Frampton or somebody playing, right. but it was mainly the record player in the ear. And as a musician, that's the most valuable tool you have is being able to hear something and recognize what it is, or at least recognize close and, and find it, you know, on the guitar. For me, it was, you know, the Kiss Alive record. That's how I learned how to play guitar. You know, once I figured out they were tuned down a half step, that was helpful. <laughs> uh, you know, it was just, it was Ace Frehley, and he was the perfect guy to learn from, because if Yngwie would have been the first guy I heard, I might not have right. I mean, not have pursued it. You know, it's like, this is impossible. It's still impossible for me to play like that. But, you know, it was, it was, it was the best education I could have possibly had. But, of course, now I'm, I'm you know, I, I eat up all the instructional videos of had every VHS and DVD of, of all my favorite players. And, that's, and now, of course, you can go on YouTube and, and see so much so much material. So, I mean, that that is a blessing. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of players that are are not maybe getting the benefit of, of, of the, the, best, the best tool, which is ear training. There's just no getting around it. That really is not only how to recognize the guitar part, but also to really be able to be in a musical situation and hear everything going on and and knowing instinctually how to fit into that. And that's something that's benefited me, you know, greatly throughout my career is, is that awareness and that ability to really identify that and, 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 and figure out what's right at, at, at that time. Well, yeah. And it also helps you <clears throat> discover who you are as a player. You might not, you might not play it the same way that sure. they did, but it's your own way. And <clears throat> yeah, I, I guess with that, you know, back then it was very, it was more mysterious. You know, you, you didn't know yeah. anything about it, but you'd read the magazines. And even then, you know, when they came to town yeah. with a big event, now, like you said, everything's very, you have access to everybody. You can see your favorite players teaching you how to play guitar. Uh, you can That's see true. what your favorite artists are eating for dinner on yeah. Instagram. As as a fan <laughs> and an artist, I guess which do you prefer? Yeah, I, I want to know what Eric Johnson's having <laughs> that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> But I mean, what do you prefer as a fan? The access or the mystery? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Because um, they're both good. It's both they're both valid things to to you know. I, again, because the old school thing was it was the mystery. It was the it was almost the the because I grew up in a relatively small town in Indiana, so it's just everything was even more mysterious. Because I mean, there was bands coming through. We, there was plenty of concerts. Right. Bands just toured, you know, everywhere back then, for very, very constantly. But uh, yeah, you had Circus Magazine to read a little bit about what was happening, and I bought I bought every music mag and cut all the Kiss pictures that I had. You know, Kiss pictures on all four walls, <laughs> you know, my bedroom. My poor mother, God knows what she thought. But uh, <laughs> so I somehow got away with it. But yeah, there there is a there is there's a coolness to the mystery, and again, without the the direct knowledge, you had to kind of figure things out for yourself, and that's it's just like earn. I call it earning it. You know, that always is the best way by, you know, maybe and and again, that, that's going to lead you to do things differently um, than maybe what was the actuality. But that that leads to something that leads to something new sometimes because you didn't know specifically. Contrapuntally, yeah, you could you can see the guy. <laughs> 
you know, showing you every lick and every nuance. And it's, uh, it's just a different, it's a different thing. And I, I think both are very valid, you know, um, that's a great, that is a great question. It's a good, good thing to think about perspective wise that, that younger players have no, will have no idea what we're talking about because they've had a cell phone. <laughs> right, all, they've exactly. had the world yeah. in their pocket, you know, the whole time. So the concept of, of even, you know, waiting for that new record to come out and rushing out to look, stare at the record cover and, and dream those dreams and try to imagine how the hell is this happening? You know, that's all gone. But, you know, that's, that's something that may not, uh, you know, be available in that same way again, but, uh, yeah, and I think. But, I, but I'm 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 a nut. I am a uber stable fan of so many artists that uh, I do love having every tidbit of every information, every alternate take, and you know videos of uh, every gig <laughs> ever done. You know, it's uh, it, there's it, that, that that's there is a beauty to that. There's there's so much that you can consume and learn from. This is kind of <clears throat> off topic, kind of more back to the writing and playing uh, aspect. When you're writing a song or creating an album, when you go into a project, do you know what you want ahead of time, or does it just kind of happen organically? It's uh, the good stuff happens organically, no <laughs> doubt. I mean, there's. Um, are you talking conceptually? Once I get to the studio with the band, or when I'm writing, or I, I, I guess I, like. I mean, you've been in several projects. So I don't know how many you've been on at the same time, but like, if you're writing something, this doesn't work for this band. Do you just kind of abandon the idea, or do you just kind of let it go and see what comes of it? It's it's interesting because it depends on the people that I'm eventually getting together with. The, my original trio of Mike Dane and Mitch Marine. So many times there wasn't a whole lot of direction I had to give them. Um, they would just kind of know instinctually what to do, how to react to what I was doing. Sometimes I'd have a specific idea for a drum group or, or bass note here and there, but I, I love being able to work with players that I don't have to necessarily map everything out. Never any charts, ever. It's just like, here's, here's the tune, <laughs> you know, and let's play it. Um, now, I mean, so I do write a lot now in my, in my office or my studio, and I'll work in GarageBand or Logic and I feel like finding a drum groove that kind of works close to what I'm hearing. I'll do that. Sometimes I don't want to paint myself in a corner. It's dangerous to how, how thorough to make your demos. Um, unless you really want it to sound a specific way. But again, I think if, if you're blessed to work with great players, you're going to be better served by letting them do what they do naturally. That takes a lot of trust. It's, and again, it, the 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 caveat being if they're truly great at interpreting and, and coming up with their own parts, but uh, like I say, a lot of the players I play with, I, I have that kind of trust with and that kind of a relationship with. Um, again, you can go in and, and have every specific part detailed, and, it, and they'll be able to play it. But again, you know, it's the same for me too. If somebody wants to write out every note of the guitar part they want me to play, I can do it. I can. I'm. I'm I'll come in prepared and. But if they want something that is always more organic, like you're talking about, let the guy do what he does. You know, here's the melody, here's the structure. Um, there's a couple of producers in town here that do jingle work or session stuff, and I'll come in. They'll just write basic chord charts. They never try to, you know, tell me or, or they just they, they they trust my instinct. You know, they know that I'm gonna I'm gonna find a part that's really gonna work. 
you know, so it, sa- it saves them the. It, it makes their it makes their job a lot easier. Obviously, just they know they can bring me in and they're going to get something that's going to be right for the tune. Hopefully, if, if it's a good day for me, anyway. <laughs> but yeah, I prefer to if I don't do too thorough of a demo, then I know I'm going to get a fresher take from from the other guys, and I think that'll always serve it better. But there is times where yeah, okay, I'll I'll, I'll do the demo. I'll have some. some specific things to communicate. Okay, this is really what I need here. I need this kick drum here, whatever it might be. Um, but again, the overall vibe would be, man, just let them do what they do. And, and then, and then kind of dial it in from that. I call it dialing it in. You know, just, let's see how this feels. And I'm pretty good about going through and, and kind of fine tuning each part that, that I see that will serve my intention the best, you know, and a lot of times it'll be better than I, you know, certainly anything that I could have, you know, figured out on the keyboard or the drum machine and that's going to be way more creative and way more natural for, for the instrument and the and the player playing. I kind of wanted to switch gears on you just for a minute. Um, I know sure. that you've uh, collaborated with Olivia Newton, John over the years uh, you've yeah. worked as her yeah. uh, director for the North American tours. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. How did that opportunity happen for you? I, I know that she's been fighting some health concerns as of late or off and on. Yeah. Um, I guess. She has, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how did you get to work with her, and, and and how many years did you get to collaborate with her as far as touring goes? It's uh, that's a great question, and it started in the late '90s. It might have been '99 or actually 2000. But I had a call. I was I was down in I was in Austin doing a record with a great singer songwriter named Sarah Hickman. And I had a message on my machine from Simon Phillips saying, Andy, fancy working with Libby and John. She needs a guitar player. And I was working with Simon in his uh, fusion band. He was he was at, still in Toto at that time, but he and I had a fusion thing that we were doing. And uh, Toto was managed by the same company that managed Olivia, called Fitzgerald Hartley, Mark, Mark Hartley. And... Uh, she had retired. She had. She originally had breast cancer in 1992, and, and it essentially, you know, got through the cancer and decided to retire. And she just just want to take care of her, her daughter. And uh, but she did some, a few gigs in Australia in the late 90s and kind of got her toe back in the water, and it went well. So they wanted to bring a band from Australia over to the states to do some to do some tour dates. But one of the guitar players couldn't make the tour so basically management just said to their artists hey we're looking for a guitar player who do you know so simon recommended me and that was it and that turned into 15 years of uh some of my favorite gigs i've ever done with some of my favorite people um she's just incredible but the for the for the for the musos out there i, I you know i i tell the story that you know i i basically i didn't have much contact with the the, the current music director that was a guy based in Australia, I ended up getting a live board tape like a week before the rehearsals and a song list. But I'd already gone out and bought all the records. I was like, I'm going to learn all, you know, there's a certain amount of hits somebody's going to have and they're probably going to be playing those songs. And I knew, I grew up with her music, so I knew a lot of the tunes, at least in my head. I did, you know, back from Having Never Been Mellow in 1973, I was a fan. I was, I was 10 years old going, wow, listen to that voice, you know. So it wasn't a stretch for me at all. People that know me from Simon Sanger, you know, uh, at that point I, you know, had a year after seeing a couple of my solo records and Danger Danger. The last gig they would think of me doing is Olivia Newton John, but 
there's, I don't know many players that could really do it well because there's such a variety of material from the early country stuff to pop to jazz. She's, she's a really wide ranging artist. And, uh, and I really, really love her and enjoyed the band that we put together. So eventually my, my story is, is that I came in so prepared to the first rehearsal. I mean, we ran through the whole show the first day, but we had three days slated for rehearsal. I had it on the first run through. I said, there was no question. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. You know what I mean? Because I treat every gig like it's the most important gig I'll ever do. You know, whether it's playing down the pub this weekend, some cover songs or whatever, whatever it is. But management recognized that early on and thought, well, okay, this is going well, but we don't need to bring the Australian guys over to North America every time. We'll just make Andy the, the, the band leader and, and, and form a U.S. based group. And that's what we did. So, uh, yeah, it, I mean, again, it, it led to 15 years of, uh, it was a great, um, working situation because she wasn't touring all the time. It'd be like a month here and there. It was just perfect for me, you know, as, as, as kind of, uh, a supplemental thing to my own career. I'm still doing Simon's thing occasionally. I do her thing and my thing. So as far as just keeping busy as a, as a, as a, as a guitar player, it was, it was really perfect. Um, and she is, she is battling cancer again. This is the third time and, but she's doing good. Yeah. She's the strongest woman person I've ever, ever met. She's mm -hmm. incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, just a, uh, a force to be reckoned with and just a genuinely great, great, kind human being. So, uh, very, very, very thankful to her and, uh, and then really proud of the work that we did together, you know? Absolutely. I have one more question before we let you go. I know we've kind of went That's over okay, this. Man. Um, so it would not be, it, yeah, well, even, I have a whole list of questions that I ever got to. So maybe we can have you back okay. on in, in the future when you're not too let's, busy. Yeah, let's, let, let's, let's do a part two because, uh, yeah, full, full disclosure, I went to the gym with my son after I picked him up from school and then at a Starbucks. <laughs> Uh, on the way home. So yeah, I'm chatty. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry if I'm a little long winded, but no, yeah, we, we can do a part two, man. I'll be happy to, I'll be happy to do that. Fantastic. Oh, that'd be fantastic. So, okay. Last question. Um, it would not be an, an interview with you if we did not bring up danger, danger. Um, I guess, sure. uh, you know, you have some diehard fans to this day with that band. Um, and there's, it. you know, the, the renaissance of that, uh, 80s AOR sound is kind of creeping its way back into popular culture a little bit. Sure. Are sure. we ever going to see a day where Danger Danger makes another album together again? The original band. Yeah, I could, I could definitely see that. Um, we did a, we did a handful of reunion gigs. Um, I'm a, my chronology is horrible but it may be five or six maybe seven years ago we did a handful of dates like in we did a few in japan one in new york mm -hmm. and one in uh in birmingham england uh and it was great fun i gotta say you know there was there was certainly a period of time after the band the original band you know kind of went its separate ways the, the band has always kind of continued as danger danger but steve you know steve west and bruno ravel kind mm -hmm. of being the core of, of that band and, and you know ted was in and out a couple times and paul lane was was singing in the band um, so it never really ceased to be Danger Danger, but as far as the original incarnation, you know, with Chad and myself and Casey, that, that fell apart in 93-ish. Mm -hmm. But um, there was a time, you know, after that band that I really distanced myself from it in a way in that, you know, it was good fun and it was good rock and roll stuff for the day, but, you know, I, I wanted to establish my own voice and it wasn't necessarily 
steeped in that in that in that music, right? Mm-hmm. So, but the the bottom line is is that that movie has so many great times, and there really is some good music in there, you know, that uh, I could be proud of. And uh, and I it, in, in that time, just post being in the band, when I was really wanting to establish my own career. But everywhere you everywhere I went around the world, it was, you know, I would I would run into these diehard fans and. and and I related to that as a fan of the music, you know, all the stuff that I that I'm into, especially when it's a music that that you're into when you're in your teens. Mm-hmm. You know, that body of work, whatever you're obsessing about, whatever's getting you through that difficult part of life, which can be, you know, not the easiest time for some people. You know, it really it anchors in a way that it's it's more special than anything you'll ever get into. So when I would meet those people around the world, I you know I could relate to how what what the music meant to them. You know what I mean? And I remember getting letters. We would get these bags of you know stacks of fan mail back in the day. And I would read these letters from these young girls most frequently, just talking about how rough their home life is, but the music got them through. You know, not that Danger Danger was particularly special in some way in that regard, but it's just that music. Mm-hmm. You know, the music. Whatever they chose to get into, that's that's a special thing, you know. And so I'm always respectful, you know, um, uh, of that relationship. And uh, and it, again, again, I had I had an absolute ball in that band. There, yeah, there was there there were some issues as well. But the bottom line is, the first concert I ever saw was Kiss in 1976. I saw them on the Destroyer tour. I'm in the last seat in the back row of the Robert Stadium at Evansville, Indiana, and I just knew that day, this is what I want to do. I was already playing, and I was in my first band, and you know, but that just solidified it. This is the greatest thing ever. The power of this rock music and the whole spectacle. And little did I know, gosh, so let me do the math. Is that was '76? Then in 1990, that's only what 14 years later. I'm on tour opening for Kiss on the Hot in the Shade tour. One of the uh, one of the first big tours I got to do with Danger Danger, and it was just it was it was unimaginable. You talk about that mystery and that that the impossibility of even knowing one of those people or or, or seeing you know shaking somebody's hand. There wasn't even a possibility in my small town mentality. You know, that just did, that wasn't even possible. So to be in that position, and we and Bruno was and Steve were the same way. We we're just huge Kiss fans growing up, so we were just. We were literally like little kids in a candy store on that tour. So we did a bunch of dates in uh, with with Kiss and Slaughter was the other band. And then we did in nine, in '92 we opened for Kiss on the Revenge tour in the UK and did about I think ten shows over there. So and they treated us so great. They were so so cool to us. It was Paul and Gene, of course, but it was when uh, Eric Singer and Bruce Kulick were in the band. And every guy was so great. And we had such a ball hanging with Gene and Paul. They were. <laughs> Lots of great stories, lots of lots of camaraderie. The the whole I was the only guy in Danger Danger not from New York City, so there was a there was a bond there because it was a bunch of you know Kiss were New Yorkers and so it was Danger Danger, so there was a major bond there, and uh, we all got along great. And uh, but yeah, it was hard not to be fanboy most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty cool. So so many great times from Danger Danger, no doubt about it. And uh, I'll always look fondly back on that time. So yeah. It's. I think that it's a possibility. I think. I think Bruno and Steve and Paul Lane, and uh, and Rob uh, Marcello just did a great record that's coming out. They have a, a, a side band called the Defiance. 
highly recommended for Danger Danger fans. It's like the closest thing to a Danger Danger right, Danger Danger new record right now. Stephen Bruner writing the tune, and Paul's a great singer, and Rob's a killer guitar player. I call him Mini Me, even though he's <laughs> taller than I am. He's, he's a killer shred. He's he's been the guy that's been doing the Danger Danger gigs all these years. Really great player. Well, fantastic. But yeah, I would be op- I would be open at some point if Ted would be involved. Uh, yeah, dude, why well, even just do a couple of tunes? It'd be it'd be a, it'd be a lot of fun. Oh, very cool. So, so see, I'm I'm still in touch with with uh, with Stephen Bruno quite a bit. So. I'm just, I get the feeling we'll do some at some point. Oh, excellent. So, um, before we let you go, is there anything else that you would like to plug or promote? Oh, uh, well, I plugged the, the guitarexperience.net website. That's mm-hmm. a good place to go. Uh, there will be a new Andy Timmons band record probably about next May. I'm finishing writing now. We're going to record. We've been kind of dabbling over the past few years, but... It's starting to, to come together now. I'll plug that. The new True Fire video will be coming out soon in the jam. I think that's late September. Um, other than that, just, man, I will plug, just be a decent human being. Be nice to people. <laughs> be, spread some love, man. Walk down the street and just smile at somebody that might need a smile. Just That's the best thing I could say. The world needs more of that these days, so I'll just leave it at that and just wish everybody the best and Thanks for checking out my music, and we'll talk again, Eric. We'll uh, again, like I say, with going to the gym and a Starbucks, I was a little <laughs> Absolutely. So, <laughs> um, no, you've been fantastic. Uh, this is how it's going to work. We're, we have about three episodes ahead of yours, so um, your episode should probably be released in about three to four weeks. And when it does, I will email you the link. Everything. Bob is the editing wizard, and uh, we'll have it okay. out to you, and we'll share it on all all of our social media avenues. And if you could sure, do the I'm same, glad to spread it too. yeah. And then um, how about I uh, get a hold of you uh, late fall, winterish, or something like that. So we can Perfect. do a part two and I can get all these questions answered that I had written down. <laughs> I'd be, be happy to do it, man. I enjoyed it. Well, thank you so much, Andy. You have a great night. I'll be in touch in probably about Thanks, three weeks. Right. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care guys. Bye. Bye.